Hey friends, my name's Stevie Taylor. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. My guest today is Craig Calhoun, a bass player, composer, arranger, audio engineer, founder of the Brothers of Oz. Craig grew up on military bases through the US and Germany, and also spent time in Holland and a bit more in the US before moving to Australia in the mid-80s to forge out a career in music. The Supremes, Marsha Hines, Wawa Nee, Renee Geyer, Kevin Boric, Mark Williams and Erin Clark. And there's heaps more. There's a lot to Craig's story, so I'm not going to give any more away. You better stick around, though. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig Calhoun. Cheers. I think we're rolling. Okay. <laughs> Craig Calhoun. Yes. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. I'm delighted to be here, actually. Yeah, mate, great yeah. stuff. And I'm, we're in your studio in um, uh, the North Shore of Sydney. Yeah. Um, I really dig those speakers, man. Where are they? Where do you get them from? They're they're an old speaker. Yeah. Called Tannoy Little Reds. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, Tannoy's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I had um, event Opal events before that. Oh right, okay. And um, this sort of industry. Friend, yeah, yeah, which I was really happy, especially the bottom end. Yeah. I love the bottom end on them. Yep. Um, but the um, the getting the top end right. Um, is is why I went for these being right. the design yeah. right mm. right and you do a lot of um, uh, mixing from from here yes yeah. yeah I record it here mix it here yeah drums I might go into um, to uh, the school of tape that I used to teach at okay yeah yeah and how long have you been into sort of the engineering side of things wow um, it goes back to in about 12, 13? Yeah, Actually, right. before then, because cool. I, I remember for my 10th birthday, my parents bought me a, a reel-to-reel recorder. Yeah. But it was the little small reels that only went for like a minute and a half. Right. And I remember loving the Jackson 5 because they'd just come out, but you could never get a whole song on it. Right. So that's when it started. Yeah, yeah. And then we moved to Germany yep. when I was 11. So you were in Colorado at that uh, uh, we were in California at the oh, stage. My, yeah. my, my father's in the army. Right, okay. So yeah. we never really stayed anywhere too yeah, Okay, right. So by the time I was 10, I'd lived in Oklahoma, Kansas, Wisconsin, um, and then moved to California. Right, okay. Yeah, and then... Um, oh, in New Jersey, yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, and when did the move to Germany happen? Um, 1970. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. 1970. Yeah. And, and that was because of father in the military? My father in the military. Yeah. 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 So the Vietnam War was on. Okay. And by that stage, he'd already been twice. Right. So we were on a nuclear missile base. Right. But in the countryside in the northern part of Germany. So it's only something like, I think, 21, 25 U.S. soldiers. Right. And um, once a month, because you were so far from the big base, once yep. a month you got to go to the main base and buy supplies and, you know, groceries and, and for the, um, 
the soldiers, they had basically access to everything, you know, hi-fi equipment and really great things. So in the village that we lived in, I think there were four or five U.S. families. And me being the oldest kid, I got to um, babysit. Right. You know, and so by the end of the month, I'd have 30 or $40, you know, saved up. And we'd get a chance to go to the main base. And in the um, PX, which is the big department store on the base, albums were 99 cents. So I'd buy 30 or 40 albums just based on covers. Right. Take them home and then discover the music. Oh, wow. And because there were so many soldiers, you know, that would be there for maybe a year or so, it was always transient. Yeah. Um, they'd buy equipment and then sell it off really cheap. So I ended up buying, you know, a really great hi-fi and then then ended up buying a reel-to-reel, yeah. a Sony reel-to-reel. So all those albums I bought, I would record. Right. And so my palette in music is just so broad because, yeah. you know, you buy it for the cover and then discover the music, you know. Right. You wouldn't yeah, have yeah. any kind yeah. of judgment towards anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, I remember having first editions of a lot of albums, mm. you know, um, but early Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, the first Eagles album, first Kiss album, right. and comic books. Yeah. That was the other thing, yeah. you know, a lot of comic books. Yeah. And... Um, my mother, her background was, was music, mm-hmm. so on her family's side. Yeah, I was going to ask if music was mm. within the family, yeah. Yeah, yeah yep. it was her side. Um, her father played guitar, pedal, or slide, you know, yep. lap slide. Mm. And um, both the brothers played jazz and mm-hmm. blues. And so I have early memories of sitting on the front porch of his place, you know, with him playing and yep. that sort of thing. So by the time we moved to Germany, she had had seven kids. Right. Yeah. And um, one night they went out and my, my parents went out and she got up and sang with a band. And they found out where she lived and then came and asked her to sing with the band. Right. So every weekend um, she was singing like in the local areas and stuff. Um, and I got to go along and watch that. So that was my so, upbringing. See that stuff. Yeah. 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 And when did you start? Oh, sorry, it was um, um. Would guitar have co- come before bass? Yes. For you? Oh, yeah. 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 Sorry yeah. if I've come. No, no, that's, that's <laughs> what it's all about, man. There's like, yeah, there's yeah. no water. We'll just go wherever. Yeah. yeah. Um. Having having been an exposed to music, I would have been about probably seven, eight, somewhere around there, maybe nine. Um, and I, I've always had really vivid dreams and there's American Indian on both sides of my family as well mm-hmm. but I, I used to be able to go to sleep yep. uh, or go to bed and I'd close my eyes and I would see this like a slide you know those photographic slide carousels yeah. and it would spin around and whatever I could see what the slides were as it rotated mm. and whatever it would stop on that's what I would dream about Right. This would happen every now and then, you know. And I remember being really into the Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'd see them go around and want to, you wanted to stop on that, and then you know I would have a dream about the Beatles. And yeah. Wow. Um, growing up in the States, we we had the Beatles cartoon, like a cartoon series. Yeah. Um, and I remember being so into the Beatles, and I got a job um, mowing lawns and being on military bases. Yeah. You know, shining, shining boots and yep. and pressing uniforms and things like that. Yep. 
And um, I remember saving up money and buying a guitar, an acoustic guitar, mm -hmm. an nylon string, and buying my first record, which is a 45, and it was the Beatles. Yeah. Lady Madonna. Lady so, Madonna, yeah. yeah. That's a good one. And the flip side was um, something with sitar, um, the, one of the George Harrison songs. Oh, yeah. And I remember hearing that thing, what is that? You know, what kind of instrument is that? Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of where our um, early part of the guitar started. And then I had a dream that I was on stage at a big outdoor festival. And I was just rocking the crowd, you know, the whole band was. And what it felt like when I woke up, that was it. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to know that feeling. Yeah, right. That's cool. You know, so um, that was my quest to really, you know, start pursuing it a bit more. And I had an older cousin who um, who was right into rock and and all kind of stuff. And he turned me on to a few things. Yep. Um, he, he was the first one that played Hendrix for me. Yep. Uh, 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 Electric Ladyland. But yep. I didn't quite get it. I just heard a little bit of it. And yep. my mother was out the front on the porch. This is back in California. Now, yep. Reading the paper. And I'm playing basketball in the driveway. And she's reading the paper. She says, oh, Jimi Hendrix died today. And I went, oh, who's that? Oh, yeah. You know, and then like a week later, I heard Band of Gypsies. You know, machine gun, who knows, and band of gypsies, and that just blew my mind. Mm. And that would have been September, because yeah, he died in September. Okay. And then December, we moved to Germany. My father came home one day, and he said, um, "How would you like to go to Germany?" And I said, mm, I, w "I wouldn't," you know, because <laughs> the vision I had in my head was this this place that was just all bombs, you know. And yeah, right. I think, why would you want to go there? Yeah. And he said, so well, you were totally aware of that at the time. Where, where you would be going. The, the no, he just came home one day and No, just, I mean about the, the, the bombs of the war. You kind of... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because um, as I said, by that stage, he'd been to Vietnam twice. Yeah. You know, the first time was in 65. Yeah. When it was pretty hot and, you know, your his time there was like a year. Okay. And he came back and he was home for a little while and then he went back again. And I never understood why. And fast forward to, you know, nearly 40 years or so later, and he's visiting me here in, in Australia. And um, everybody had gone to bed and my father and I just sat up talking, drinking beers and everything. Mm -hmm. And he allowed me to just, just ask him anything I wanted to. Yeah. You know, so I started asking, you know, about his childhood. and Because yep. he was the eldest of 11 kids. Right and what that was like growing up in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, and the racism and, right. you know, only being allowed to go to school when it was too wet to work in the fields and things like that. You know, that, right? that was his reality, you know, and, and when they did go to school, you know, it was like six mile, five, six mile hike, and, you know, the, the school buses would come by and kids would spit on them, you know, and, you know, just that was his reality. Right. So soon as he could, he, he wanted to join the, join the services. Yeah. So um, I think he was just 18 or something like that, and he joined the services, and it was kind of towards the end of the Korean War. So he got sent to Korea. And being 10 years older than my mother, mm. um, he came back, gone to Korea, went to France, and um, this is interesting. He almost mar He tried to marry someone there, and bring her back to the U.S. It, she needed a physical to be allowed to come, and and that they hadn't married yet. Mm. 
and he said that this doctor that had to do the physical was really racist and claimed that she had had a spot on her lung, I think it was on her lung or her heart, and said, no, she's not fit to go. And so he wasn't allowed to... And he knew, you know, there was nothing wrong because she, apparently she'd gone and seen, you know, a, a, a French right. you know, thing. And um, and uh, so that never happened. Yeah. So he came back to the U.S. and was stationed in, in Kansas. And my mother had been singing before she finished school with her brother. So she's still in high school. Her yep. brother's older and he... He finished school two years later. He's in Kansas with a band, mm-hmm. and she wanted to go and sing with him. And her mother said, "Well, once you graduate, you can go." Mm-hmm. So she graduated and went to Kansas. Yeah. And um, one night, my father and his best mate walked in, and he saw her, and he just smitten, and he said his, mm-hmm. to his friend, "I'm going to marry her." Yeah, right. You know, yeah. it was one of those. One things, of those you know? stories. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah. And he chased her and, you know, she didn't want to know. <laughs> she, she was like 18, 19. Yep. And, um, you know, he kept courting her and courting her and doing all that. And, then, you know, eventually they dated. And I think a year or so later, you know, they yep. got married. Cool. Yeah. And then uh, a year after that, I came along. You know? Yeah. Yep. Oh, so you're the, you're the first I'm, child? I'm the first child of seven. Yeah, okay. So five boys, two girls. So. All right, and are we brothers and sisters musicians? I, I'm the only one who went that route. Okay, yeah. right, okay. I'm the only one who went that route. Um, they're, all, they're musical yeah. and, and dance and rhythm and all of that stuff. Sure. Um, and because I had, you know, a calling at such an early age, I mean, I knew what I wanted to do. Yep. It's only now in my grown-up years mm. that I really got to understand how fortunate I was. Yep. You know, to come from a, a very happy family. Yep. Incredibly happy family. And to have found something that I wanted to do. And my parents just realizing that and saying, okay, well, we'll support you. We just want you to go through school, get your schooling. That, that, that was my dad's words. Just get your schooling. Yeah. Because I wasn't allowed to. You know, and... Um, so yeah, they they supported me doing that, and um, so let's fast forward now. Sure. Back to moving to Germany. Yep. You know, so yep. I'm eleven, I think at eleven, twelve, and um, our parents go out. She gets up and sings with the band, and they find out where she lives and ask her to come sing with the band on the weekend. So I got to go along, and. My first performance on stage was um, was with them. Um, I was playing guitar. Yep. Um, oh, sorry. Self taught yeah, guitar. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I didn't. I didn't have teachers. Um, yep. You know. So I I had had this dream that I was on a stage and that was my pursuit to do that. Yep. I didn't know how to tune the guitar. Okay. So what I would do is I'd look at an album cover. You know, I'd say, okay, I'm going to play like Eric Clapton, you know, and I'd look at a, 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 a Cream album, and whatever direction the tuning pegs were in, I would turn it ah. to match the picture, you know, thinking, okay, now I'm playing like him, you know, <laughs> and then I'd pick up a Hendrix album and, yeah. you know, and do yeah. that. Or, well, flip it around. And, yeah. No, no, just turn, <laughs> no, no, just turn yeah. in the little knobs, you know, right. and, you know um, the, the tuning keys, Yeah. and that's how I thought you 
to the guitar, you know, right. and um, obviously it wasn't sounding all that great. <laughs> <laughs> but someone finally showed me how to tune it. Right. And from then on, you know, I, I would spend five, six hours a day. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd go to school, come home, do my homework, and just playing guitar and where were you getting your chords from i was i wasn't really playing chords i didn't know oh chords. okay right so you just do melodies and yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. playing the guitar <laughs> right, gotcha. you know yeah um yeah i i did i didn't know chords you know yep. so i'm making it up as i go and i remember thinking man how amazing hendrix was not realizing i'm hearing multi-tracked guitars yeah i'm thinking this is one person playing all these parts yeah. you know um which was you know interesting but then i i got this reel to reel and because i didn't have anyone to play with this was um one that allowed you to record on one track yep bounce it to bounce the next track and play at the same time yep so what i did is i quickly realized that if you're going to play something if you're going to play the first part you need to play it you know with a structure because yeah. if you're going to jam to it you need to know yeah. where it's going yeah, yeah. And that's what I did, not yep. realizing that, in actual fact, I'm multi-track recording. Yep. And it also taught me the discipline of rhythm and playing in time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, playing yeah. your part. Playing your part. In and, one shot, yeah. And playing in time. Though. Yep, yep, yep. You know, and... Um, and so, this is not along to, uh, this is not along to drums or this is just playing in yeah, time yeah, to, yeah. to yourself, basically, yeah. Because yeah. I, didn't, I didn't have anyone to play drums. Sure. Um, I had a drum kit, yep. you know, the one that my mother's drummer gave to me, it was a sonar, which oh, geez, yeah. which would be something <laughs> now, yeah. yeah. It sure would. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so, and didn't have drum machines. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I, I started doing that. And I remember I used to do things like um, I had a microphone and I'd act, act out like I was interviewing somebody. Yep. You know, and, you know, what do you think of this? And then... All of a sudden, I cut in a piece of uh, a lyric from a record or something, uh, and record cool. that. Yeah, you know, I, I was really adventurous and adventurous with yeah. sound. You know, I was yeah. doing some really crazy things because nobody told me I couldn't. Yeah. You know. Yeah, no rules, eh? No rules. You yeah. know, and everything was new. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, and also babysitting at a lot of these different houses. Yeah. I got exposure to really great audio equipment. You know. Right. So, you know, I, I get to play their, their systems and discover their music as well. So yeah. sound has always been a, a real big thing for me. Mm-hmm. And um, so Germany was, that was really something. You know, the first two years I went to an English boarding school. So we'd have to leave the house at like quarter past six in the morning. And me being the oldest child, um, I was in junior high school, and the rest of them were in prim- uh, elementary school or primary school, you, you guys call it. And it was like a 40-minute ride in one direction to take them, so we'd get picked up in this Volkswagen bus. Mm-hmm. And we'd take them 40 minutes that direction, and then another 30 minutes to take me in the other direction. School started at quarter past eight in the morning for me, and finished at ten past four. And then... They'd pick, pick, they'd have picked up the other kids, grabbed me, and then we'd get home probably about six. So it was like a, you know, nearly a twelve-hour day. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd have dinner, do homework, and then I would practice. Then you jam. Yeah. 
you know. Yeah. Um, as a result of that, you know, even to this day, I average about four hours sleep. Yeah. I've just kind of always been like that. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. Um, if I sleep, you know, like seven or eight hours, I wake up more tired than... Yeah, it happens, you know? doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of been my regime. So I fit in a lot. Yeah. I yep. get a lot of things done, you know. That's and, cool. and being such an, a curious and inquisitive person, I always thirsting for knowledge. Yep. You know, I, t- I teach myself all kind of things. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So what stage did you start um, getting into bands? Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so I started playing in, in Germany. Yep. Um, wasn't in bands. Sorry, yeah. Uh, let me phrase it. We start playing with other people and, and. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with other people. Um, very first time in a sort of band was just prior to going to Germany. Okay. So this is back in the States. I'm oh, right, okay. Year six. Yeah. And we put together a band um, to play at the school talent show okay cool so I uh, had a friend who played drums had a friend who didn't play and I told him he was going to play bass yep so I gave him bass and um, showed him how to play mm-hmm. a James Brown song and a, a, this other song called by a band called El Chicano and um, our first gig was at a baseball game <laughs> You know, just in between innings, we yep, went yep. out and played, the, you know, two songs. And the next gig was um, at the school talent show, and we did James Brown and, you know, one other thing. Cool. Won the talent show, and then shortly after that, we moved to Germany. Right, okay. So, and, and were you, um, did you do much with your music in Germany? Um, a- apart from sort of going off bass and... No, I had, I, I was still playing guitar at yeah, the stage, yeah. so... Um, my first performance on stage was with. No, I'm oh, sorry. What I meant by going off, by going off the military base and heading out to get your music and bringing. No. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah I get your question now. Yeah. Um, what really accelerated my playing is after going to the English school for two years, I then had to um, live at that main base where we'd go once a month. Mm. Um, I had to board there, yeah. And being a military base, you know, they they look after their soldiers, so they have access to all kind of activities, mm. um, and music being one of them. So they would have these these this music hall, and it would be several rooms that were like plexiglass, soundproofed, and they'd have drum kits in each one. You could check. All you had to do was show your ID, and you yep. could check out. Any guitars, amps, um, all the amps would be in the room in the drum kit, so you could check out Fenders and Gibsons and mm. Epiphones, and and that's all you had to do was just book it and go and do it. Awesome. And being so many soldiers, that's what really made push myself, you know, because I I'd go in yep. and just end up jamming with people who were way beyond myself. Right. So it made me step up. How cool is that? You know. That's awesome. And that was an incredible experience. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when there wasn't anybody in there, I'd just go and check out a bass and then, you know, play bass or, or I'd go and check out drums. Yeah. Yep. And that also taught me how the instruments sound and what yep. they're like, you know. Yeah. Um, still, there was no formal, you know, learning how to read music or anything. Right. Just play it, you know. Yep. Hmm. Yep. Um, and 
What happened after Germany? So we moved back to California, but a different part of California, Monterey. Uh -huh. And um, on an army base again, and I was playing guitar. I was okay by this thing, you know, I could play. And I saw somebody slap. And that was it. That was like, wow, I want to do you, that. When you say you saw somebody slap, was slapping it, a bass. Yeah, yeah, but was it in a club or a pub or something? Did you know who the person was or did you? Um, yeah, it was, it, it was, um, yeah, it was a bar. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I saw somebody do that. Mm. I was 16 at the time. And I just thought, how cool is that? And it yep. was a, a Sly and a Family Stone yep. song. And having been totally into Sly, yep. you know, having seen Woodstock and all that as a kid, um, I'd heard that sound because I had the albums, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't know what that was. You know, right. it's just one of those things before, from. you know. Did you even know it was bass at that time on the albums? Not really. No. You just knew it was a sound. A it's sound, like hearing yeah. sitar, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and then when you see somebody do it, and you think right, it's a bass. that's really cool. Yeah, and the same cousin that turned me on to Hendrix. Yep. he had a bass because his his flatmate um, works for Fender. Yep, and then made a bass for himself, and then got behind and rent. So mm -hmm. he gave the bass to my cousin. Right. And my cousin, who you know, always pushed me with music, he gave it to me. Yeah, I still have it. I still play. Uh, yeah, it, right. Awesome. The precision. Yeah. And uh, man, once again, I get the bass, and I was spending five, six hours a day, just working out how to do it. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. Until I got it, and I then switched <laughs> to bass. You know, I just stopped with the guitar. Yep. And there was a much older band in town, mm -hmm. and they were looking for a bass player. And mm -hmm. there was myself and another kid named Anthony Wilkerson. Mm -hmm. We were like both around the same age and same stage of playing. And we both auditioned and Anthony got the gig. Mm. And I thought, okay, more work. So I just went back into it. And a year later, they heard me play. There was a, a battle of the band. And I had put together this band. <laughs> and they heard me play and then they asked me to play with them. And I just thought, no, nah, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's great to actually that, that. Would that have meant sort of getting rid of your, your mate yeah 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 getting rid of my band and yeah but it was no, just get, getting rid of your mate out of that other band the guy that no because they, they weren't happy with him he wasn't oh, right, he wasn't okay. very professional okay right you know they loved his playing but you know he was late for things or okay. didn't turn up and stuff like right. that you know yeah and so they went on the hunt and asked me yeah you because know, it was nice to be able to turn it down you yeah. Know? yeah 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 um yeah, so I was hooked. Yeah. I was hooked on bass. Um, my father then retired, and we moved back down to Southern California. Mm -hmm. um, around the beach, Laguna Beach, Newport Beach, all that area there. I got a call one day um, to audition for this band. And at that time, in that area, there were two bass players, we were rival kind of bass players, and it was myself, and my influence was um, for slap, Larry Graham, Graham yep. for mm -hmm. soloing, Stanley Clark. Yep. 
and for sound Bootsy, you know, mm-hmm. so hey, I, I used to actually get called Baby Bootsy, man. I was yeah, so, really, yeah, because of sound. I'm mean, yeah. so into sound, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And uh, Melvin was um, Jocko, and yeah. you know that sort of thing. Yeah. Which man, when I heard Jocko, yeah, I didn't know what I was hearing. Yeah. Yeah, I was just like, that. I can't even go there, you know. But Melvin was really into that, and they contacted him to play with this band, and he said, no, you know, give Craig a ring. And they called, and it was a uh, the lead singer. It was a singer and the guitar player. And I came and met with them, and we clicked. Uh, we found a keyboard player and a drummer, and we called ourselves Zazo. Cool. So you'd say Z Z A Z Z O. Yeah. Um, our audience were wealthy, wealthy white kids. And, um, you know, for your 16th birthday, you get a Mercedes. That's okay. Thing. It was the OC, that, that right. TV show. Gotcha. The OC. Yep. That was our audience, you know. Right. Them and their parents. And um, we were playing in a club one night. Wow. I'm going to go into this because I've been working on my autobiography. Right. And I went back and caught up with the guitarist from back then. And yep. he filled in a piece of a puzzle that I didn't cool. get. So I will tell you about it. There was a chain of these two really well-known restaurants called The Quiet Woman. And we played, we had a residency, like a one-month engagement at one of them, the one in Newport Beach. And I think, you know, it's probably maybe our second week there. And we were playing, and then all of a sudden, we were asked to move, not finish the month out, we were asked to move to the other restaurant. So I'll just leave you with that story for now. Okay. And I'll lead up to it. Okay. So um, we're, we're doing this show at the second restaurant now. And we get to the end of the night where we announce the last song and a couple of guys walk in. And we play the song and then one of them comes up and says, hi, you know, my, my friend back here, Jim, would like to give you a hundred dollars to play another song. We really like your band. So we played another tune and he came up and asked for one more. So we did another and then he gave us a couple hundred dollars and we went back and had a chat to them and he gave us the money. And he was saying that they had flown down from San Francisco. Um, they started a production company and they had been there looking for acts to sign and they'd seen quite a few things and were unimpressed and were on their way back to their hotel and happened to pass by, saw us and wanted to offer us a contract. So we met with them and they offered us something like a five, six page contract and we took it to um, this lawyer who was Linda Ronstadt's lawyer at the time. We, we'd done a show for him and as a favor, he ended up rewriting the contract. So it went from like five pages to 25 pages. Mm-hmm. And he wrote it in such a way that, because this was their first venture, that if anything went wrong, we didn't come out owing any money. Right. Um, we were given a $9,000 advance. We were flown to San Francisco, or the other side of, San, the, other side of the bridge, Mill Valley. Uh, we were given a five bedroom house. There were five members of the band and a 16-track studio with two engineers. We were paid $300 each a week to be in the studio from 11 to 5, mm-hmm. just creating music. Mm. Anything you wanted, any equipment you wanted, they bought it. I mean, I had like a, a three-way active bass rig, and I, 
you know, I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> you know, I turned up and Music Man had just come out, so I asked for a Music Man bass. Yeah. Um, and being such a prolific, you know, creator of music, you know, I I went to town. I mean, he, yeah. I, and I yeah. knew about recording already. Yeah. You know, yeah. so we were just generating all kind of music. And I was the youngest member of the band, mm -hmm. so I'm like 19 by this stage. The other guys were 23, 24, and they would go out and party and do all that stuff. And, you know, I would just be there, still taking it all in. After about six months, um, we went into one of the main studios in San Francisco, Wally Hyder Studio, and I think Santana was in... Studio A, and we were in Studio B, and um, we had a producer on on board by this stage, a horn and string arranger from Count Basie's orchestra, and they brought in Dolly Parton's drummer to play drums. They brought in Don Grusin to play keyboards, um, and somebody else to play guitar. But the the only ones that they really kept on most of the stuff was myself and the singer. Um, by this stage, $100,000 had been invested, and because the project was going so well, another $100,000 was invested. Um, they bought land, because they were going to build a studio. I mean, this whole project was going on because they were so happy with what they found, and yep. we were just a real hardcore funk band, you know, mm -hmm. especially in those times. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the, the music started being altered, you know, because now there's horns and string arrangements, and and eventually we got to meet the main investor and kind of express that, you know, wow, we're not really happy with how this is sounding, you know. And it ended up that the guy who discovered us, an investor, ended up having a fallout about this project. And turns out that he was embezzling money as well. <sighs> so, you know, the, the thing had been going on for a year. Um, because I'm now 19, about to turn 20. I, I think I might have turned 20 by this stage. Um, I'm not old enough to go out in California because you got to be 21. So while all the other guys were out partying and everything, I was in the studio learning how to operate all this stuff. So the project comes to a standstill. It stops within one week. It's finished. And um, we had to go back to Southern California. I bought myself a car, so I, I drove back. I took my time driving back, you know. And I remember, because I've always heard music, always hear music in my head, and um, having taught myself to play, if I hear it, I can just go for it and record it, you know, and yep. put it down. Yep. And I remember driving back through the desert, and this song came to me. Um, music, lyrics, everything. And because I couldn't write music, I didn't have a recorder, all I could do was just pull over and write the lyrics down. Yep. You know, so I'm singing it to myself the entire time, you know, until I get home. Mm. And I get home and I go to the guitar and I go up and down the fretboard and I can't find the first note that sounds like this song. Mm. Do the same on the bass and I do the same on the piano. and. It's like none of the notes sounded like, you know, not even the first note of the song or even the same key. And so fast forward from there to 
the band's finished. Yeah, you know, we've come back. Two of the guys had given up music. And um, I'm ringing around to them because my attitude was, well, what's next? You know, we had this thing. So this is just the first part of the journey. What's next? So I'm ringing the guys and saying, hey, you know, let's, let's keep this together. If I book some gigs, you know, you guys play. And I finally got the, the um, two guys who gave up music to come back on board. Yep. And I booked a show. Um, and that was cool. And then I went to this, there was a nightclub in Orange County that had a sign out the front, paid auditions for bands. And the deal was you go, you audition, if they liked you, they paid you for the audition and you got a two week engagement. So I go there one afternoon and I asked for the owner of the place and he takes me outside. This is in the afternoon and we're standing outside and I'm giving him the spill on the band and showing him the um, you know the brochure and the background and he looks at him and he goes four black I don't know and one white I don't want any black people in my club just straight up you know and I just looked at him in total disbelief you know and you know I grabbed my things um, and I went home and on my way home I'm thinking well you know if this is what I got to deal with why stay here you know I had already experienced other countries and yep, you know yep, yep. and I saw you know what my mother had done over there yep. so I went home told my parents what had happened and said I'm leaving you know and um, they understood you know but I didn't want to leave my family because we were all very close yep. but I knew that why stay here if you got to deal with that right you know so um, I sold what I had and a year later I bought a one way ticket to Germany mm-hmm um, I was 21 by the stage and went back to the village that, that we lived, ended up catching up with the drummer from my mother's band. Mm-hmm. And he was with a, a singer and a guitarist and they'd been looking for a bass player. Mm-hmm. So I started playing with those, those guys while rehearsing with them. It was all original stuff. And just before we were about to you know, get serious and do, you know, book a couple of shows, um, I got a call because I'd left my name and number at a music store when I first arrived, I got a call to do a European tour with the Supremes. And I was like, really? (laughs) So I said to these guys, hey, I'm sorry, I've got to take this one. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, I, I do the tour. And for those guys, they ended up continuing on with their career, but they didn't get another bass player. Mm. So they call themselves Trio. And they had a hit song called Da Da Da, mm-hmm. which turned out to be that theme for that Saka Ta, you know, the, the crack. Oh, yeah, I know yeah, the song. I know the Da 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 song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That was their hit. Oh, okay. So, you know, my path goes this way and they continue on doing yeah, that. Yeah, great. So I, I go on the road with the Supremes and, um, man, that was that was a real dream come true for yeah, me. Yeah. And what I hadn't realized was how much James Jameson had in, influenced me. Yeah, right. You know, because yeah. when it comes to playing a groove, that's where I sit. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And um, I remember on the tour, we went to Berlin and we had a Romanian sax player because he had defected. He had to fly in and we had to 
myself and the keyboard, sorry, the drummer and the guitarist, they were twin brothers, and we drove in. And I didn't realize at that time that Berlin was like a few hours inside of East Germany. Mm -hmm. I always thought it was on the border, you know? So we get to the last border between East and West and cross into the East. And it was like time stood still. All the tractors that you saw in the field were, you know, like from the 40s and 50s and cars and things. And because you were inside Eastern and Eastern Bloc country, you couldn't stop your car and just get out and walk around because, you know, you could be taken away. So you could only stop at designated places. And um, we get to eventually get to Berlin and you go through the last checkpoint, Checkpoint Charlie, and then you're in this city that's just modern. And, um, yeah, I'm kind of getting off track. No, it's fine, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I just kind of lost the plot. No, that's cool. Well, we're, I was going to pull it back to, um, you said that you didn't realise how much James Jameson had influenced your playing. Yes. Did you know who, who he was at the time? I didn't or, know his name. No, okay, so it was, wasn't until you sat down and started learning the Supreme stuff. Did yeah. you find out who he was? And no. Went, and then no, went, I oh, gee, I, play, I already I kind of play like that, this. Yeah. Yeah, right, okay. I, it was just, it always felt natural to play yeah. that way to me. Yeah. To hear lines like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was because that's what he did. He, he heard lines, played them like nobody else did. Mm. And, that, and that's how how I work. I, I hear lines. Yep. Um, actually, you just reconnected me back to cool. Yep. This the the, the tale about um, hearing a song while driving yep. and not being able to find it. Mm -hmm. So I've left the U.S. I'm in Germany. Do the Supremes tour. Supreme's tour finishes and the guitarist and keyboard player and I end up going to the Swiss ski resort and playing as a three-piece cover band doing that. Mm -hmm. um, I find out that they'd been ripping off, ripping my pay off, you know, for like an extra thousand I was meant to be paid per month. The other two guys? Yeah, the other two oh. guys, you know, and so I find that out and I stop and I break with them. And I had met a drummer from Holland and he said if ever you're going to start a band you know come to Holland and you've got a drummer right so when once I found out they'd been ripping me off I just got in the car and went to Holland rang him up you know and turned up at his place and he the day I arrived he was going for a meeting because he would volunteer at this youth center this and um, I, I went along with him and they were working out it was a art gallery and the youth center and they were working out what the activities were for the week mm -hmm. and when they got to Sunday they didn't have anything booked and I said well if I put together a band can I play for the door and sure so I had myself had a drummer and the guitarist sorry the keyboard player that was with me in Holland kept calling me asking if he could come and so he came so that was you know the three of us um, we we called ourselves Future, found a guitar player, and the first week we played, we had like 13 people. Mm -hmm. Next week, it was double that, and it just kept building until it became a scene. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point that um, we were, it was a, it was a, a health, well, a danger because of the fire. You know? Okay, yeah. And so 
there was one performance we were meant to do that they had told us to shut it down and we had already set up so what they did is they put police officers around the building and wouldn't allow anyone in mm. you know I've actually got photographs of all of this stuff so, yeah yeah um, so shortly after that I'm doing a, a recording session and they had hired the first DX7 you know, in the country. So yeah. I'm at this session and they hired My dad it. had a DX7, so I, I know DX7. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love those. Yeah, things. so, yeah, um, at the end of the session, it had to go back to the hire place was the following day, which was near my house, so I offered to take it back, yep. which meant I got to play with it. Yeah. You know, so I'm there that night and I'm going through the presets, blah, blah, yep. blah, preset, and I hit this one sound and it was that song in my head. Right. The song from the, when you're driving? From when I was driving. <laughs> and that's when I realized that there's another dimension to, to music, and it's not about the note. Yeah. That's why I couldn't find it. It was about the sound. The sound, yeah. And the moment I hit that sound, I was able to realize that song, and I actually made it that, you know, that night. I made it come to life. Um, so that was a really interesting discovery, you know, that there's this other dimension to it. Yeah. Um, another incident with you know learning like that is I also did a session and they had the first Lindrum cool you know and once again I offered to take it back which yeah. meant that night I got to play with it cool and what I did is record it on my reel to reel I'd create beats record it onto tape I did this all night so I had like hours and hours of drum beats awesome. from a Lindrum is that cool which meant you know I, I now had a, a drum yeah to, to jam to yeah you know? So I created a lot of original music way back then with drum loop. Well, they weren't, yeah, they were loops, but I'd record yeah. maybe four or five minutes of it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's cool. All right, so how we, um, how do we get to be in Australia? Now, did you toured with Chris Hines, is this right? Yes. Mm. So, Talk about yeah, him a little bit. That's how that can. Yep. Um, I get a call to do a recording session for this guy who DJing was was starting to happen. You know, DJ scratching and hip, uh, well, rap yep. was starting to happen then. Mm -hmm. And Chris had this, he was really a progressive forward thinker, had his own studio, and he had this idea to create drum loops and then hired me to come and create bass lines to go with them, mm -hmm. and then sell it as a as an album. Yep. You know, so that you could scratch with and this and that. And man, I wish I had a copy of it now. You yeah. And um, so that was how we met. And then shortly after that, he gave me a call to do this tour, and um, which was a fusion of well classical flute, which he played, but with effects. Yep. Uh, Senegalese percussion mm -hmm. that also sang, an Indian percussionist from Madras, India, uh, a synth jazz guitarist, and funk bass. Wow. And it was a fusion of all of those things, and the pieces were anywhere from 10 minutes to 18 minutes in length. Yeah. yeah. And because I don't read music, um, I had tried. But uh, for some reason, it, it, it just didn't work for me. And I didn't know till many years later, um, while having my son assessed, that I discovered I'm dyslexic. And I, you know, I'm sitting there while she's doing the test and I'm, I'm getting the same results he's getting. Yeah, right. Okay. And that kind of explained why, 
you know, my issue with, with printed music is my eyes don't really scan from left to right okay. and then go back to the next line. It just jump, moves all over the place. Right. <laughs> Funny story. I remember um, getting a, a job with um, Marsha Hines yep. to do a tour and they sent me all these charts. Yeah. And you know, I obviously couldn't read them. Yep. And I went to a friend of mine and got him to help me. And I saw throughout several charts there was a, a little so a thing that said simile but being dyslexic it looked like smile, smile. Yeah. you know so I thought wow how cool is this they've got little Oops. markers in here for you to look up from your music and smile at the audience you know? so I put little happy faces right <laughs> yeah, he still talks about that to That's this cool. day you know? yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah Chris um, asked me to come on board and we toured Europe and Don Burroughs saw us and then invited us to Australia. Right. And which year was it? What year was it? That was 85. 85, yeah. So we came here. We, the first port of call was Perth. Yep. We were 10 days in Perth, um, 10 days in Melbourne, and then 10 days here in Sydney. Mm -hmm. We did the basement, two days at the basement, and then we played the opera house. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, in Holland, before Chris came on board with this, I was about to move to London. Okay. I'd kind of done quite a lot in Holland. I was going to move to London. Yep. And then I got offered that tour. Mm -hmm. And when he announced we were coming to Australia, I knew nothing about Australia. Yep. I wasn't even really sure where it was. You know? yep. And um, I'll never forget, you know, having grown up in the military and moved so many times in my life, I never really felt home anywhere. And... We arrived, we left Holland, it was like minus 10, and we arrived at Perth, and it was like 28 degrees at night. And I remember walking to the front of the plane as the door was open, and this warm gust of wind hit me with this eucalyptus smell. Yeah, I've got the same, same story. Sorry, when we moved from New Zealand to Australia, yeah. when we left Wellington Airport, you know, we had our woolen jumpers on, and it was cold, man, jeans, mm. and then... um. Yeah, got off the plane, those doors opened at Sydney Airport, and it was just like getting whacked in the face. Mm -hmm. 36 degrees, like, whoa, fuck. Right. Anyway, sorry, back to you. No. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. you know, it was it was the one thing about the wind and all that, the, 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 the smell, but instantly I had this feeling of, like I was home. Yeah. You know, I had never experienced that anywhere. I felt like this is where you're meant to be. Mm. And we got to the air, to the uh, hotel and I stayed up all night. I just went walking all night long yeah, just cool. waiting for the sun so I could see what this place looked like, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was just blown away, you know. And so we we did the um, festival hall in Mel in in Perth and you know meeting Australians for the first time that was like, yeah. Having gone to an English boarding school it wasn't that foreign to me. Yep. Um but it was um I, I couldn't believe how open everything was, you know, how innocent. And that, that was my take on Australia, mm -hmm. like the last frontier of the Western world. Yep. And very innocent, mm -hmm. you know. And <laughs> we're, we're doing these shows and they're filming it for the ABC. And because I memorize all my parts, mm -hmm. I'm not looking at sheet music. So, you know, I'm the one that has the interaction with the audience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and the and the camera and all that, you know. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm performing. That's where for that it. sort of begins, eh? Yeah. The whole showy thing. 
Well, yeah. yeah. I, I, I thought if you're if you're playing music, you're playing for somebody. So yeah, it's about that connection. I mean, if you come and see me play, yeah, you know, I, I make it a point to look at everybody, yeah, and look them in the eye and make that contact, you know? yeah, um, because I'm just grateful you're at my show, yeah, because to me, the most precious thing that I have is time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I have no idea how much of it I have. Mm-hmm. So, I, I I literally my mantra is um, is to fill it with as much happiness as I can. Mm-hmm. So you know, if this is the last thing I do on this earth right now, I'd do this mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, you're smiling, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I I love it, and so yeah, time. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So when the when that tour ends, mm-hmm. uh, what what happens after that? Um, okay, so we're here for a month. I've got to go back to Holland. Mm-hmm. I had already decided I was moving here. Okay. And the other thing that was a real bonus, um, because I'm, I'm grateful for people giving me their time, at the end of the shows, I would go and talk to them. Yep. And I would say... Well, first of all, it blew my mind how big Australia was. I had no idea, yep. you know. And I'd meet people that had relatives that they'd never seen because they're so far away. It was mm-hmm. like you know, fifteen hundred dollars to fly here. And so I'd say, well, listen, we're going to Melbourne, we're going to Perth. Give me your friends or your family's number, and I'll ring them and invite them to the show. You know, which I did. You know, and I still have that network of, of people to this day. You yep. know? I kind of did that all my life because I I love what I do so much that I gladly invite people to come and see me play, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'd get to Melbourne and I'd ring up all those people and say, hey, your, your cousins or your family, you know, inv- uh, put me on to you and I'd like to invite you to my show. And so by the time my tour had finished here in Australia, I had met some incredible people. Mm-hmm. And when I came back here, those same people, um, when I put in an application to to be a resident here those same people wrote incredible testimonials for me mm. you know I, I had um, Double J or, which it was then yep. you know yep. Arnold Frollo's wrote one um, I had had some major companies saying that my my skills were an asset to the country wow awesome so I came back um, ended up getting a tour with Kevin Burridge yeah right so that was my introduction to the road here yep. <laughs> I remember the first time, our first gig was in, man, somewhere near the other side of Eden, like, you know, six hours or so, you know, yep. from here. Yep. And I remember we were driving uh, on the Great Western Highway, or Princess Highway, whatever it was, and thinking, wow, this, we're still around houses and things, you know? And I said to him, when are we going to hit the freeway? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? And yeah. you know, they laughed, and yeah. that's when I learned, okay. Yeah, you know, it's a bit different. The road is the road here. Yeah, know? that's right. And mate, what, a, what an invaluable experience, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I toured with Kevin for nearly four years. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And, okay, so what came after the Kevin? So, <laughs> uh, my first daughter was, was born. I decided to cut the, the, the touring back a bit. And um, this drummer, Chris Sweeney, gave me a call because there was a band called Wawani that was starting. And 
I was asked to play bass. So started rehearsing with them and Paul Gray. I was giving lessons to his brother and um, we were about to do the debut, like the, the record had been done and um, we were about to do this debut performance. And that afternoon I get a call from immigration saying, Craig Calhoun, you know, you've overstayed your visa. Oh. You have 24 hours to leave the country. And I had submitted, um, some months prior to that, I submitted, um, you know, an application to, uh, as a resident. And I asked them, you know, did, did you see my, my you know, application? He said, no, I haven't seen it, um, but I'll, I'll check and give you a call back. And he ran back and he said, okay, we found it. Yeah. which means that you've submitted it before this has happened. Cool. So you have two choices. You can either have us process it from here or you can leave the country and apply from outside the country. He said, if you stay here and do it, we don't look at it too favorably, but we have to consider it. But if you leave the country and apply from out there, then you're doing the proper way to do it. So... Uh, <laughs> I was meant to play with Wawani that night, so I rang them, rang their management, and they said, oh, we don't want to take a chance. Yeah. Um, you know, immigration turns up at the show. <laughs> so I had to get Paul's brother to step in. Yep. And the following night, I was with Kevin Burridge opening for Santana at the Entertainment Center, and I thought, they can come and arrest me there. I don't yeah. care. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. pass on that no, one. No, no. And I turn up at the sound check, and Buddy Miles is singing lead vocals for Santana. Shit. Yeah, and so yeah, I'm blown away with meeting Buddy, you know, mm. Santana, but Buddy was the one, mm. you know. And so we did the show, and after Buddy Miles and I just hung out, we went back to the Siebel Townhouse, hung out all night long, and you know, the next day I'm meant to be on a plane. Turns out we're both on the same plane. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and the story in L.A. making the application. Yeah. Because I had already gone through all the process. Yep. I had everything, you know, all the applications and all the letters and everything. So I go to the, the, the consulate in, in L.A. and, you know, do the application, make the, put it in. Um, I pay the fee, but you have to go and get a money order. So I get a money order for the correct amount and put the thing in. And they said, okay, you'll hear from us in about three, four days. I wait, didn't hear anything, so I ring them up. They said, oh, we haven't been able to process your application because the Australian dollar has devalued, so <laughs> you've actually overpaid us. I said, well, just, just, keep, just, take it. just yeah. keep the balance. And they said, we're a government department, we're not allowed to, it has oh. to be the exact amount. So I've got to drive, you know, for like two Sorry, hours. did you have to contact them or did they contact you? And I contacted them because I hadn't heard anything. So they weren't going to contact you? And well, they probably would have. Yeah, right. But, you know, I'm the one that's... Like, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. You're getting a bit anxious there. Yeah, yeah. So, so I have to drive up to L.A. now and, you know, and um, put in another money order for that amount. <laughs> so I do that, wait a few days, follow it up again. They said, um, the dollar's devalued again. No, so, what? Yeah. So twice this happens, you know. So I go up and I said, find out what the rate is right now. You know. <laughs> so I go and I get the money and I give it to them. And so that's underway now. 
Um, yeah, I eventually get a call back saying your application is almost done. Um, we're just waiting to hear from the Swiss police that, you know, you have no offenses over there. So I go in, I said, listen, you know, if that's all you're waiting on, please just, just let me go. Yep. And if you find something, I'll gladly leave. But, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. Sure. And they agreed to do that. Awesome. And, you know, she gave me the stamp. And then she actually said, we've never processed anybody this quickly. Yeah, right. You know, it's, yeah. it's a blessing that I had everything already together. Yeah, cool. And, um, yeah, another little funny story is right after I left there, I left the, 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 the consulate and I go to my car and there's a Volvo parked in front of me with this car keys hanging out the door. Mm-hmm. And I take the keys and I look around to see if there's anybody and I go to the nearest, um, there was a house. And I go to the house and I said, listen, you know, these people, whoever it is, has left these keys. I just want to give it to somebody. And sure enough, later that night, I get a phone call and I left my number. And this woman, you know, rings me to thank me for giving her the keys. And she said, you know, I'd like to give you a reward. And I said, oh, listen, um, I've just got approval to go to, you know, back to Australia. So I'm going to be leaving and, you know, um, told her what I did, music and that. And she said, oh, my late husband was a bass player. And he played um, upright bass, and she said, I'd like to give you the bass. And I just said, listen, I'm sorry, I, you know, I can't take it. You know, I, I don't have room for it. I mean, in hindsight, I should have gone and met, because I have no idea who she was. It was a black woman. Yeah. You know, I don't know whose bass this yeah, might have right. been, you know. Yeah, have you ever thought who it Oh, man, I often think who it yeah. might have been. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Because she said he was a pretty serious musician. Right. Yeah, and yeah. Anyway, one that got away, eh? Yeah, yeah, it's one that got away. <laughs> All right, so you're back to Australia. Is it back to Wawani? Um, or they sort of. They, they've gone on now. They've gone on, of yeah, course. Yeah, because Paul's brother's Of course, yes. Yeah. Yep. So I start doing um, uh, music for corporates. <laughs> um, and then I had a friend ring me up. She worked at a du- video duplication plant. And she said, I've got a client here who wants to dub aerobic videos and he needs some music for these and so you know would you be interested and I said yeah send him over so he comes to my place and he said you know I'd like to get music for this and then he sees my gear and everything and he says can you write music for competitive aerobic competitions I've just got this image in my head you might have seen me kind of giggle to myself I've just got this image of some music in the background with um, um oh jeez, what's the dude's name with the curly hair? Not Gene Simmons. Oh, never mind. I can't remember his name. I'll, I'll cut this bit out. <laughs> no. <laughs> Richard Simmons. Richard Simmons. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I don't. I, I've heard of him. I don't even. Yeah, know. He, he was the this um, flamboyant. Uh, Aerobics guy. All oh, right. Aerobics. Well, this was morning, the music. That's. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. This was that. So yeah. he comes by, he checks out what I does do, and he says, you know, can you write music for competitive aerobics? And I said, mm. you know, first of all, I always say sure. Yeah. Now, what's the criteria? He said, well, it has to be one minute and fifty seconds in length, mm-hmm. and it has to be about one hundred and sixty beats per minute. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're going back to you know early eighties. Um, sorry, early 90s. 
And there wasn't a lot of music that fast back then. So I said, well, what do you guys do? And he said, well, you just take, you know, existing songs and speed them up. And so the criteria is one minute, 50 seconds in length, 160 beats per minute on average. And the judging is based on, you know, there's X, there's a number of compulsory moves you have to do. Mm -hmm. And then your creative flair, your choreography and how well it works to the music. Yep. So I've always been this one for just thinking differently about things. Mm. So I said, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a click at 160 beats per minute, and I'm going to film you doing your routine. Yep. And then I'm going to write music to that. Yep. And so he, you know, we do that. So I've got the, um, the file, and um, I start creating music, and I start treating it like it's a film. So I'm putting sound effects on it. You know, so when he's jumping and doing push-ups, there's all kinds of stuff going on, you know. And he comes back and hears a track, and he's competing for the national championships, so I get invited, you know. And the first four or five acts, you know, they're jumping around to the chipmunks, basically, you know. <laughs> Tina Turner's simply the best with the track. You know, it's like, <laughs> great balls of fire. I mean, it was, yeah, like, yeah. ridiculous. And the thing that I did with him, <laughs> he, he wanted to do the Thunderbirds. So I started off with the actual Thunderbird thing, five, four, you know, the yep. countdown. Yep. And then he launches into this, and there's this massive, you know, sub-rumble. Yep. And when you speed up music, it obviously gets very thin. There's no bass in it. But the sound system was a massive PA. So... Mm. After hearing the chipmunks, all of a sudden this track comes on and the room's rumbling, rumbling. <laughs> yeah. you know, and he's doing this routine and there's sound effects and people are just going da, 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 crazy. Da, 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 people, yeah, man, yeah, it was yeah. like full on, you know. <laughs> so he wins, you know, hands down. Cool. The championship, then he competes for the world. Yep. Wins that hands down. Like nobody's ever seen anything like this. Yeah. You know? And then I had everybody come into me. You know, I was right. writing for, you know, solos, duos, teams, and everything. Right. And, you know, it was the number of gold medals, silver, bronze medals that, that I was responsible for. That's great. And um, and then he he referred a friend of his that was competing for Mr. Universe yep. for Australia. Mm-hmm. And he came to my place, and I did the same thing. You know, he's doing these poses, and I'm filming him, and I'm doing things like taking a couple of bricks and scraping them together and, and recording that and then pitch shifting it to our octaves lower. So as he flexes, you know, it's going oh, like, you know. Yeah, wicked. And then he goes and he competes and he comes forth. <sighs> and they asked him to come back the following year to do his routine again because it was so entertaining. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I was just doing... You know, that's awesome. That's how I think, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then shortly after that, there was... The, there was um, because the aerobic thing worldwide was starting to happen then, you know. Yep. And the medium of playing back, back things were cassette. Yep. You know, I mean, CDs were starting to phase in. Yep. Um, and this company, they produce all the cassette for aerobic instructors. So you have high impact, mid impact, low impact, chill down and all this. So every month they'd have X number of titles. And what I didn't realize is in the aerobic world, they do everything in counts of eight, you know, mm-hmm. so every move is done on that. So it's about 
how popular the songs on your tape are, your yep. mixtape. Yep. And they had a blanket license from all the record companies, so they could use anything. So if they're doing things in counts of eight, and you know, say it's, you know, the new track by Prince, and it does four, and then it goes to a bridge, they can't use it. Mm. So once again, early days of digital technology. Mm-hmm. I had an Atari. Yep. <laughs> and um, you could cut audio, two yep. tracks of audio. So I said, well, why don't I just apply this to that? So if this song needs to extend by four, I'll just cut that. And so what it then made happen is for all the competitors, we had to jump because we had songs that nobody else had on their tapes. Mm. And so they went from selling like, you know, a few hundred a, you know, a month to, you know, like seven, eight hundred tapes a month. Yeah. Yeah. And because, yeah, nobody was doing this. And yeah. I found out, you know, around the world, nobody was doing this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was another thing that just started me off. I was, I was making great money doing yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Mm. And then where from there? Wow. Um, so, I was then doing a lot of corporate stuff. Um, I played with a band called Fat Time, and um, we opened for Joe Cocker. Mm-hmm. It was a really great band with this girl, um, Bridget O'Donoghue, Rory O'Donoghue's sister, horn section and everything, and that was a lot of fun. Um, then I started doing you know, tours with um, I did one with Kevin Burridge and Rene Gare mm-hmm. from here to Cairns and back, you know, by road, and that was great. Yep. Marsha, mm-hmm. um, I did video clips and things like that with Barnes and Diesel, um, mm. Rock Melons. And I played on a track with John Farnham and Daniel Gahar. Um, I did the Rock Melons, yep. the Groove album. Oh right, okay. Yeah, because yep. I, I I was working at Brashes. Yep. When I first got back here, mm-hmm. and um, and the 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 rep for Tune Bases Tune had just come out, and he came by and he brought one and said, "Hey, you, you might want to check this out." And so I took it to the session and played it, man, I loved it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I ended up doing you know that album. Yep. But didn't get the tour when they yep. went on the road. I never got the call. So, yep. um, so let's move to Brothers of Oz. Brothers of Oz. Okay. Yep. Um, so I'm not touring on the road anymore. Mm-hmm. I did. I didn't want to stop playing. Yep. So I decided. Okay, uh, I'll have a band. Um, where, because there was so much work, then you couldn't have a band where everybody was always available. Got you. Yeah, so the concept, well, is that I would have this band, I'd pick a bunch of songs that we'd all know, or may or may not know, but we're great enough musicians to just improvise. Mm-hmm. So that's been the premise of the brothers the whole time. You yep. know? Um, no set lists, yep. no rehearsals. Yep. It's because I, I program it live, you know? I, I'm looking at the audience, I'm gauging what the audience is and, and what song needs to come next. Yep. You know, and, and just giving everybody the freedom to bring whatever they're going to bring to it. Mm-hmm. So that way it stays spontaneous for me. Yep. You know, because if you play the same songs the same way every time, mm-hmm. you know, you get bored. So that's been 26 years. Yeah, wow. 
It's impressive. Yeah. And um, it's kind of been a revolving door, oh, that's for lack of a better term. Who's the sort of cats besides yourself that have always kind of been... Man, it, it's one of those things where people will come and they'll be in it for a while and then they'll go away and then they'll come they'll back. They'll come back, and, yeah, yeah. You know? Jeez. Yep. Um, There's been... Even, even if I count people that have just done like a one-night gig with the brothers, yeah, it's, it's like over 90-odd musicians. Yep. You mm. know? Um, guys will come through and be with me for a period and then they'll go off. And, and do something else. You know? Yeah. One of the longest-running members would be... Um, Eric Rasmussen, mm-hmm. um, Rex Gow, yep. and Calvin Welch. Yep. I mean, the very first lineup was um, <laughs> I got turned on to Barry Leaf. Mm-hmm. So Barry was in the band playing rhythm guitar as well. Um, Eric, Scotty Johnston on drums, um, and then Scotty left and Calvin yeah it was Calvin that came on board and Calvin Welch he and I had played with Kevin Burridge I got him with Kevin so we were right. at three piece yeah and that was really where the name the Brothers of Oz came from right okay so it was KB and the Brothers of Oz yeah yeah mm. yeah um yeah Mark Williams after after Barry left then Mark Williams um no it was Kimmy Tapia uh huh yeah Kimmy came on board. I found out that he could sing. Yep. I didn't know he played drums. <laughs> yeah, right. And he was saying, you know, that, that was the first band he ever fronted just as a singer. Yeah. And man, what a great guy. Right. Great voice. Yeah. Um, then he he moved on, and then I had Mark Williams and um, Erin Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Elms was she did it f- for a while as well. Um, Peter. Morgan, he was in it, um, and I said I had a gig shortly after that. I had a gig at the City of Sydney RSL, and whoever was booked for vocals didn't show, and it might have just been me forgetting to book somebody. Cause man, I was all over the place then. Sure. You know? yeah. um, I was running a company called Corporate Gigs, so I was doing a lot of corporate events and organizing all yeah. that. And yep. And so, yeah, I had no singer. So I ended up having to step up and, you know, doing that. And I think we jammed on like five songs for the whole evening. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was definitely a P-Funk thing, you know. Songs were going like 20 minutes. And I had a horn section, you know, so there's enough to go around, you know. Yeah. You're a funk. Yeah, that's that's a... That's my thing. Yeah. You want to explain that a little bit? Um, that's my having grown up in Germany um, at the age of 13 I was I was in nightclubs yeah. as a DJ because I had all of these albums mm-hmm. and nightclubs then had massive sound systems and you know I, I, I wasn't into having girlfriends and things then you know I was just music so I started DJing you know, and um, so that background of all that rock and, you know, my natural heritage, you know, of, of funk and blues and all that, it was the fusion of all of that. So, and I was in Holland at the time, and I got a call from the government saying, 
you need to get out of here. <laughs> um, and I put in a case to to stay in the country because I was um, employing Dutch musicians. And the style of music we play is Eurofunk, American funk with European musicians. Yep. So I went to court um, on that premise and actually won. Shit, good stuff. Yeah. That's cool. So, yeah, I got the stamp. You, know, you got a stamp, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Eurofunk, yeah. yeah. It's not just the name plucked yeah. out. That's yeah. yeah, I got the stamp to stay. Awesome. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. Um, how often are you gigging these days? Hardly. Yeah, right. Hardly ever. Yeah. You know. Um, I think I mentioned to you before we started that I had been looking at moving to Melbourne. Yep. Um, having come here at a time, actually this is what made me come back to Australia after that tour with Chris Hinza. Mm. I, I went back to Holland and instead of moving to London, I decided to come back to Australia because I'd never been to a place that had that much live music. I mean, back then, every pub just about had a band, you mm. know. And I come back and I'm touring with Kevin Burris straight away. We're like seven nights a week, um, making incredible money. And it always really surprised me how it wasn't considered a profession. Mm. You know, I remember trying to get a bank loan, you know, after I was married, we were trying to get a bank loan and I couldn't put down musician. Although I was making more money than the people who were yeah. filling out the forms. Yeah. You know, on paper, I'm making more money even. Yeah. Because, oh, you're a muso. And I never got that here. Mm. You know, I never understood what that, that disrespect for a profession was about. Right. You know? um, sorry, what was Yeah, it? so that's why the gigs sort of... Ah, yes, yeah. Excellent. So, um, Brothers of Oz. Um, there was a... a cab driver who was he was a drummer also they call him the jazz cab mm -hmm. but he was the one that had a word to Chris Richards um, that got me in the basement and the, the, the interesting thing is having played the basement as an international artist and I came back and I, I, I tried to get a gig there and I couldn't get a gig yep. and I had to have this guy kind of sure. yeah, open the door but you know that became a scene so it was yeah. every second week Yep. And the week in between myself was Doug Williams. Yep. So you had Doug Williams and hit the mix and then the Brothers of Oz. And yep. that carried on for yeah nearly four years, man. Yeah. Yeah, and there would be queues around the block to get in. Yep. And being, you know, thrilled with what I do, I would invite anybody to my gig. I remember going, you know, through the toll when you had to give the coins money, and yeah. just, you know, giving them my card and saying, hey... <laughs> Give me a call if you want to come to the gig. Yeah. Man, and to this day, I still have this incredible network of people. Yeah. It was one guy at a parking station, invited him to my gig, and put him on the guest list with some friends. He turned up, man. And from then on, I had free parking in the city for two years. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. And then he finally moved, you know, he's oh, like no. gone. And then I found him in North Sydney. Yeah. I had another year of free parking. Oh, brilliant. You know, it's you be kind to people, man, and it comes back to you. Yeah, yeah. You know. How have you seen the, the scene change the last five years? Pretty obvious. Um, yeah, has the, it affected you well, directly? I, I, I've been fortunate in that because I do so many things okay. 
I can. I, there's always something else that comes. You yep. know. I mean, I, I also do technical direction. You okay. know. Uh, for concerts and conferences and things like that, you know, yep. organizing sound lighting, all of the production. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've always got something else happening. Yep. Yeah. So it hasn't sort of affected you too much? You if that was the sole thing I relied on, it would have. Totally, yeah. Totally would have, yep. yeah. Yep. And because I play music for the enjoyment of it, I'm not really about, you know, playing in cover bands that play the songs exactly the same and doing that. I'd rather do you know, a hundred and one other things, you know, related to music and studio. I mean, I do a lot of studio production. Yeah. I also teach people how to use all this stuff. Yeah. 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 Mm. That's cool. One thing we said early on, you started a little story about these two, two clubs and how you got moved from one to the other. Yeah. You didn't finish the story. Okay. Let's, oh. go, let's go there. Um, all these years later, catch up with the guitarist I'm interviewing him for my autobiography and I asked why what happened he said you don't remember he said one night we were on stage and this really old white dude came in and he walks through the door and he looks at the band and he looks around and he looks at the band and he walks up and stands in front of the stage just looking at the band and he goes what are these coons doing in here and that's why we got moved. Whoever he was. Oh, right. <laughs> whoever some, he was. Some heavy cat. That's why we got moved. Right, okay. And I didn't know that. All I, all I knew is that we got moved, you know. Right. And, yeah. you know, the, the other thing that happened that night is I had this music man bass by that stage. And I'm playing and I broke a string. I yep. broke the G string. And this guy came up to me. He said, oh, what strings are you using? I said, oh, I'm using... GHS and he gives me his car and he says come and see me you know and I go and see him and his name is Sterling Ball (laughs) (laughs) and so I mean he's like early 20s you know I go out to the factory and I meet his dad and all this and it's like wow so he gives me like 10 packs of strings yeah and um the music man just just over yeah it's just there yeah um I had the frets taken out and these half round strings he gave me the same set they've been on there since wow 1980 oh cool yeah so yeah it was Sterling Ball <laughs> oh that's wicked mm. yeah. so um any advice for young players um that brings me to a point that that saddens me the most about the demise of the live music scene and what the politicians don't really realize what they've done they think you know, most of us think, okay, venues are shut down and musicians are out of work. But what the unseen damage is, is that those generations that are coming have no exposure to see know. how it's done. Yep. They can play instruments. I mean, that the, the ability to play has been you know, increased tenfold by having access to YouTube. Of course. But the ability to perform and engage an audience that's what's lost. Yeah. You know, and you get shows like The Voice and all of that. And, and you know, your average person thinks, oh, well, you know, there's still, you know, hope there's these guys out there. But what they don't realize is shows like that only teach you how to perform to a camera lens, mm-hmm. not to an audience. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a singer I, 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 I saw in The Voice, Miss, Miss Murphy. 
incredible voice. And I remember uh, Daryl Beaton was her musical director, and he invited me to come and see her at a show at um, Ginger's. And I went and when I walked in, I realized that the front of house engineer was a student of mine from TAFE. I was teaching at TAFE. And Miss um, Murphy, she's singing and, you know, beautiful and everything, but she's holding the mic and the whole time for a few songs, the PA was right on the verge of feeding back from her microphone. Right. It was quite intimate. And every time the, the, the engineer went to push the vocal up a bit, you know, it'd just be right on the cusp because she's yeah. trying to get more level out. Yeah. Because the, you know, the level of the band is great, but the vocal's not. And that's when it dawned on me what was wrong. So I went to the engineer and I said, you're having trouble with the vocal, aren't you? And she said, yeah, you know, everything I do, every time I try to push it up, I said, turn her fold back down. She went, what? So she turns it down by quite a bit. And what Miss Murphy did was bring the mic closer to her mouth. Mm -hmm. So what was happening is she was hearing too much of her voice. Yeah. And she's regulating the volume yeah. by doing this. And the moment that it wasn't so loud, she could come forward and there was a full sound in the sound system. Yeah. And that's when I realized, to me, that's stagecraft. That's all these other things that I do, you know, yeah. with regards to sound. Yeah. Because um, when I was in Holland and I was running the band, man, I was getting up at like 4 a.m., picking up a truck, going to grab the PA, come to the gig, set the PA up, and then do the sound from side of stage yeah. while playing the gig. Because, yeah, yeah I, I know about sound and I know, you know, how I want it to sound. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um, one to answer your question was one of the things to pass on learn about sound yeah you know because yep. that's what you do mm -hmm. so you really need to know yep. about it one of the sad things that I see um, there's a, a, a store called Big Music and um, they have a program you know where they they, they put together bands amongst the, the music students and they use um you know, the guitar player, bass players, they'll have like these pedal boards and things. And that's all great. And the drummer's electronic kit and keyboard. So everything's coming out of a PA. Mm. But they don't really spend any time teaching people how to sound good. Yeah. You know, and then you see them do this show, you know, at, at the local festival. And, you know, they're playing great, but the sound is, you know. And I think that's where they fall short by not really teaching that. And I, I actually approached them. Mm. With a full-on proposition, uh, the person that was in charge then was kind of, uh, he was too difficult to deal with. Mm. But I, I mean, with what I know, man, I know a lot of stuff that I just want to pass on. Yeah, yeah. I've been fortunate enough to pass it on to quite a number of people, you know, and you know, some of the letters I get back saying, man, thank you for what you did, you know. Awesome. The head of sound for the Sydney Theatre Company, um, he's been there for 10 years. I took him under my wings when he was 18. Mm. Man, and he became my front of house engineer, the basement, and for everything else I'd, I've done, you know. Wicked. Mm. Yeah. That's really cool. I just want to pass on what I know. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know every time that somebody gave me a nugget and I ran with it, man, it was invaluable. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. Mm. And I think on that, yeah. Greg Cohen. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, my man.